Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NELA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NELA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. Welcome back to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NELA Illinois. We're bringing back one of our first guests, Jason Hahn. Just to give you a reminder of his brief bio, if you're interested, you can go back and check out episode five for the full rundown. But the short version is Jason started off his career as a reporter and a photojournalist for the Sun-Times, later went to law school in Champaign-Urbana and worked as a prosecutor downstate before he opened his own practice, where he now represents private and public sector employees in discrimination and retaliation matters. And part of that is what he's going to talk about today, representing federal employees. Jason, welcome back and thanks for coming. Hi, Max. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. So tell us a little, I mean, we touched upon this a little bit in the last episode, but tell us a little bit about your work as, was it a photojournalist? Yes, as a photojournalist. And I guess I got to correct you real quick, Max. Um, I never was a reporter. I just took photos. Uh, for the as a, times, as a reporter, I mean, I was, yeah, you're taking pictures. You're, I, I don't know, maybe. I'm, <laughs> sure. well, sorry, stories sorry for the slip of tongue there, Jason. That's okay. But yeah, I, I did that for actually the Sun Times News Group. They owned they owned a bunch of papers. Well, they owned at the time a bunch of papers, including the Daily South Town. So I was assigned to the Daily South Town down in Tinley Park, and had to cover as far down south as what? What is the name of that? Piatone. Piatone, which I'd never been to until former Congressman Jesse Jackson Jr. tried to get the airport there, all the way up north to really the South Loop. That's, that was my area of coverage. Do you think, maybe this is an odd one, do you think you still would have gone to law school if that industry had not undergone such a unfortunate and drastic change? Probably not. I probably would have continued being a visual journalist. The industry was changing where you couldn't just take photos anymore. You also had to take video. You had to know how to produce like flash slideshows, motion graphics. I started going to workshops on how to learn how to like edit video, you know, Final Cut Pro. And I mean, it was, I didn't really like doing video, but I, I was, I was okay with maybe, maybe going that direction. But then suddenly, you know, the, the, the floor came out from under me and I found myself laid up. This was what, the late 2000, like uh, 2008 to 10 range or so? Yes, this would have been late 2008. So early stages of Facebook, Twitter is just starting. Obviously, we don't have TikTok yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think MySpace was still a thing. Okay. Yeah. And, and so when you say you're, you know, going all the way up to the South Loop, et cetera, and you're taking photos, what does that mean? You're, you know, are you just like following people around and taking pictures or what exactly? Like walk us through that a little bit. So I would get emailed to me the day before, like three to five assignments, you know, go. And, and, the, and the shift that I worked was the second shift. So like two to 10 PM, which meant that I covered a lot of high school sports and professional sports. So sometimes it might be, you know, go to this high school in Oak Lawn at 4 PM and take photos of the high school volleyball, sectional, regional playoff, final thingy. And then, you know, maybe at 7 PM, go to the United Center and get shots of the Bulls game. I, I remember I had, I've had many Bulls players fall on top of me and get, get their sweat on top of me. Like, uh, 
And Argent, there was an Argentinian player. I'm forgetting his name. But anyway, Andres uh, Nocioni. Uh, yeah. Yes, Andres Nocioni. He actually broke one of my lenses that night. Uh, which, <laughs> Wait, when, this is incredible. Yeah. How did we not know this? <laughs> you, didn't, you never had the Dennis Rodman treatment where like anybody kicked you, right? Thank God, no. I, not, <laughs> all the players that crashed into me were more professional and, well, maybe they were just, yeah, well, I just did not have the Dennis Rodman. I love, <laughs> I love the word, by the way. He's actually my favorite Bulls player of all time, but uh, no, never been kicked. You, you remember, I, I, I've been trying to describe for my wife, who's a Michigander, and while she grew up aware of Michael Jordan was not like in it, like a Chicago kid growing up, you remember the sign on the Dan Ryan, right? That every night he changed his hair color, it changed as well. And there were like a barrage of fender benders the first year he was there because people were always looking up to see like what happened, what, what color is it right now? Absolutely. Yeah. I do remember that. Yeah. The coverage. I mean, those guys were rock stars. That's the simplest way to put it. All right. You've joined us for the Chicago Bulls 90s nostalgia podcast. <laughs> I mean, I'm not even a Chicagoan and I love Jordan. I'm, in my office, I have like Jordan's last shot from 98. We're all looking at it on Zoom right now, man. Yeah. I think it's the greatest picture ever made. It's pretty great. Or taken. Okay. So obviously, you know, media changes. You go to law school. Was there a motivation to going to law school? Other? Well, yeah. What was the motivation? I guess the motivation was just, I always liked school. I I like I like reading. I liked I like writing. I was a double major in art and English, and I went to a liberal arts university, well Illinois Wesleyan University. I enjoyed it, and I kind of looked at law school as a, like an advanced liberal arts program. And that's really that's all I was thinking was, I guess I'll 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 try taking this LSAT thing and just not have to have a job for three years was kind of enticing. Yeah, especially at that time. So yeah. when you grad. When you graduated, how did you end up in criminal law? Well, in law school, I had this great criminal law professor that taught us that a prosecutor can often affect justice better than the judge or a public defender because the prosecutor is the only one that can voluntarily dismiss a charge or, you know, mediate or ameliorate, ameliorate a charge, lessen a charge, you know, from, you know, like a, a class four felony to class a misdemeanor based on you know whether the defendant is contrite the defendant's criminal history so you just have a lot of power in the courtroom and i think was it plato or socrates i guess well same thing kind of that once said that oh my gosh the saying oh so there's this philosophical saying that uh, those who desire power the least should be the ones in charge. Uh, I know I'm butchering it. I think it's from the tale of two cities, but so I was kind of thinking, well, I'm not someone, I'm not someone who necessarily likes power, but I can sympathize with people who feel that they don't have much. And I just thought, you know, maybe I should be a prosecutor then. So when you became a prosecutor, you stayed downstate. It sounds like you knew McLean County pretty well if you'd gone to Wesleyan already. So you ended up as a downstate prosecutor what what divisions were you in? What sorts of crimes did you find yourself prosecuting? And we're, I'm asking you a barrage of questions at once, but did you ever get to a point in your career where you had the level of discretion you're describing to practice in that way where you could try to affect justice, so to speak, with how you charged or didn't charge cases and all of that? The reality of it was, and it's a big reason why I don't do it anymore, is that you don't have a lot of discretion, especially when you start out, you know, you and the division that I was in, first I was in St. Clair County, which is, it's the largest county outside of 
Cook County, I believe, at least it was at the time. And it's, it's called, the, it's part of the Metro East of the St. Louis area. It's right across the river from St. Louis. And I was in the misdemeanor and traffic division. So I was, I was prosecuting DUIs and little misdemeanor crimes. And yeah, you didn't have a lot of discretion. You have a supervisor, you have a boss come in every day. We would see in one court call, which would last, let's say a, a court call is typically like 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. And then, you know, 10, 15 to 11, 15. But one court call, and there were like three other assistant state's attorneys in that courtroom for, for traffic and misdemeanor. We would go through like 150 defendants, you know, just, just the four of us in one hour. And we did that by just, we did that. It was like a cattle call. We had these laptops in front of us and we called the, we called the defendant's name. They come before us. We talked to them for like a minute. The laptop would, we would be used to access the case management system, which was like DOS based. It was so antiquated, but that's beside the point. You type in their name or whatever date of birth, some, some type of identifying feature. And it would show, I mean, well, half of them had already pled guilty. And really the only reason they were there is because they still hadn't paid their fines. You know, it's part of the sentence. Um, and if it'd been several months since they'd made a payment, well, then they would get another fine stacked on top. Or if they hadn't paid their fine in a really long time, we would have to, we'd have to threaten them by saying, you know, the judge is right behind me. And uh, if you don't make a payment of, you know, at least like $10 today, we're going to have to go before the judge and you might end up in the county jail tonight, you know, and that that's going to be more fines for the pleasure of being locked up by St. Clair County Sheriff's Office. You know, so I think it's more, that's, this is like 2013. And I think people are more aware now of the unfairness of that type of system. And, and of course, St. Clair County is literally across the river from Ferguson, Missouri. So that practice that people come, that the, Dutch, the Department of Justice saw was discriminatory in Ferguson, it was pretty much the same thing in, in St. Clair County. Um, and, and I would say McLean County, I went there next after six months in St. Clair. If anything, you know, it was, it was in some ways worse. I don't want to go too much into detail, but I, it was a big turnoff not having the discretion to be able to go to my supervisor and say, hey, look, I, I think that we should maybe dismiss this case or just go easy on this defendant. And I just, I usually didn't have that, that ability to do that. I mean, so much of that is insane to me, but the, even what you said at the very beginning of you have 150 cases you go through in an hour. I don't know how you or the judge or the public defender, or the, you know, the, the individual's counsel can be prepared for that. Everything was very systematized. It was, it was practicing checkbox law. So not only would the person call you, well, you'd get a big stack of these legal sized long pieces of paper that have like black and white photo of the defendant and a bunch of checkboxes. So that's, you know, you'd bring up the case in the system, the computer, you'd look at it. You'd also have the piece of paper on the side with a bunch of checkboxes and you could write, you check a box like, okay, they, they made a payment towards their fine today. And you'd write down like how much they, you tell them, oh, go to the clerk, make the payment, come back with the receipt, show it to you. And then that can all, yeah, that could take like a minute. Well, to just talk to them and check a bunch of boxes. Yeah, it was. So for lack of a better phrase, you go from basically being the bottom of the totem pole to then opening up your own office. But how did you decide to go into employment law? Well, when I opened my, my own firm, I, I thought that I would maybe do criminal defense, but, well, because I knew the substantive criminal law, but there are a couple of things I didn't like about it. Number one is the fact that you're playing, you're playing defense. I was used to being a prosecutor, which meant that the burden 
was on my side to prove the truth. I like putting on a case. I like having a story to try to convince the jury that this is the truth. And when you're on defense, whether it's criminal or civil, if you want, you could just, you could rely on a negative defense as opposed to an affirmative defense. Negative defense being what the prosecutor or the plaintiff is saying is not what happened. And you just, it's a, it's a denial. It's a defense based on denial. Whereas, you know, an affirmative defense is you're saying, no, well, here's the real story. Here's an alternative version. I just didn't like the, the reliance on, on just denying the prosecutor's version of what happened. The second thing I didn't like so much was the business. I didn't learn until I opened my own firm that, well, a lot of criminal defense attorneys, at least in, in the Chicago area, don't have malpractice insurance. And there's a reason for that. I think there's an Illinois Supreme Court case. This is what I was told. I've never actually looked it up. There's an Illinois Supreme Court case that says if someone wants to sue their defense, the criminal defense attorney for malpractice, they have to actually be innocent. So if you're the former criminal defendant, now a plaintiff in a civil lawsuit, you know, filing malpractice against your former criminal defendant attorney, and your argument is, yes, I was guilty of whatever the, the state said that I did, but had my attorney worked harder, I could have gotten a better plea deal. You know, I wouldn't have had to spend X amount of years or months in prison. If that's your argument, that case is automatically going to get dismissed because you have to actually been innocent to win a malpractice cause of action against your former criminal defense attorney. So that's, and what that ends up meaning too, in reality is, you know, this is, this is my perception that a lot of criminal defense attorneys can promise the moon. They can blow smoke up, you know, up someone's behind and say, if you hire me, I'll do this for you. I'll do that. I'll, I'll get you off this charge. And there's no repercussions if, if they can't deliver on that promise. And I just, I, I just couldn't really, I can't do business like that. It's a, it's a tough field to make a living in. I, I, I think you have to be comfortable with some, some awkward situations like that. So, so you instead turn to employment law, it sounds like. Yes, because you get to slip into the shoes of the plaintiff. You get to, you know, you're that P party, the prosecutor, the plaintiff proof. It's, I just, I, I use the analogy of criminal law a lot when I explain the law to my clients, so, you know, just like a prosecutor, you're in that pee party. It's your burden of proof. And I like that. I like putting on a case, having a story, having to try to convince someone that this is, this is the truth of what happened. Jason, one thing that's unique about your area of practice, and sort of just to dive right into it, is you represent a lot of federal sector workers, people whose employer is one way or another the federal government, right? Yes. Okay. And, and you represent them in discrimination matters. Can you talk a little bit about why it's different why there's a, or I guess how the process is different in representing somebody who in some way, shape or form works for the federal government versus somebody who works for, you know, I I don't know, pick any private company, right? Yeah, there is a difference in the process. Well, you know, as you guys know, if you're working for a private employer, it could be Kraft Foods, Ford Motor Company, whatever. If you feel that you've been discriminated against, your first step is you have to go to an agency, state or federal. State is the Illinois Department of Human Rights, federal, the EEOC, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and file a charge of discrimination. You can't go to court right away. You will be dismissed if you try to go to court. And then, of course, the EEOC, they, they investigate. Well, they allegedly investigate your, your claims, and we won't go down that road. But if you're a, a federal employee, the federal government... It's their laws, right? It's, it's their discrimination laws. And 
the, there's there's a lot of case law where judges have written things like, as a federal, you know, if the federal government is the employer and it's because they're laws, then they should be, you know, extra protective of employees' civil rights. So you get this extra procedural procedural thing that you got to do if you're a federal employee, and that is make use of your 29 CFR 1614 remedies. I'm just citing the case, just citing the statute, 29 CFR 1614. That's the law that says, well, you get to, first you get, you get to file a charge internally within the agency. And then there's an investigator that investigates internally kind of. And after that, you get assigned to an administrative judge. And the administrative judge lets you have a hearing. There's no right to a jury yet, but you get to try to prove your case before that judge. The agency that you work for has actually paid for the investigation and they've compiled something called a report of investigation. We call it an ROI. It can be, it can be tomes, it can be tens of thousands. I've seen ROIs that were if you, you know, you stack them on top of each other like phone books, they're like, they go up to my my waist. <laughs> and and you get to have that hearing before the, the AJ, the administrative judge. Now, if you lose, whether because on the, the hearing itself you lose or on summary judgment you lose, you actually get a second bite of the apple. Then you get to go, you get to be treated kind of like a, like a private employee. You get to go file in the Northern District of Illinois or, or any federal district court, and it's de novo, which, you know, Latin for, it's like a do-over. Every, everything that the administrative judge thought about your case can't be used as evidence in the district court that you're now in. And Jason, there are some pretty short, my understanding, having never done that area of law and consulted with just a couple of employees who, who worked in that space, is that there are some pretty strict and short deadlines that are associated with federal sector EEO work that are different than, say, private employees. That is that accurate? That's true. In the private sector, you get here in Illinois, you get 300 days to file a charge. And if you're a federal worker, and that's 300 days from the date that you knew an adverse employment action had been against you. So like the day you were terminated. And if you're a federal sector employee, you have 45 days. So yeah, it's a lot shorter timeline. Well, And it sounds like to get to a jury trial, you would have to lose first, and it probably would take maybe like at least half a decade. At least half a decade, if not longer. Yeah, I, I've represented some federal employees who their cases have been in the system either before an AJ or district court for 10 years, a little more than 10 years. I mean, yeah, these cases, they can take a really long time. Do you find, so one of the things, I think one of the perceptions or maybe stereotypes about, you know, discrimination work is that if you go up against a private sector employer with some obvious exceptions, at some point, maybe the parties get to a point where it gets so expensive or contentious or everybody's just tired of it where you might go to settle. Does the federal government tend to operate that way? Or do you find it's more challenging because they're defending their own cases? They're not necessarily paying a private law firm to defend it. So maybe it doesn't technically cost the government money to fight back. Do you find that it's harder to achieve a settled resolution or a negotiated resolution for a federal sector employee? Or is it pretty similar in that vein? I think it's pretty similar, but it really depends on the agency. In fact, those of us who practice federal sector employment discrimination 
we'll 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 ask each other like, hey, what do you think of like the Department of Navy or you know the IRS? I've got a client or a potential client who is an employee of that particular agency. Are are they more likely to settle or are they going to dig their heels in and play hardball? So it kind of and I don't really know exactly what sets the culture of the attorneys representing these different federal agencies. Like what what causes you know, one set of attorneys representing the Navy, for example, to be more amenable or less amenable to settlement than compared to like, you know, the Veterans Administration. Um, is there a different, yeah. this I don't know, is there a different set of like approval, like who's going to authorize a settlement and different rules related to that? Or is it all essentially the same? So for example, in the VA versus the Department of Navy. Boy, I wish I could answer that question. My sense is that it, they can differ. I don't know how much autonomy, how much discretion these these federal attorneys represent a different agencies how exactly how much they get um some of them some of them it's it, i get the sense from them that they would like to settle but they just don't have the authority you know sometimes you can tell that right from your opposing counsel and uh, some of them some of them have been pretty pretty open to settling and it seems like they're the ones making all the decisions so this is you know you went from taking pictures of andre's nocioni to now doing Mm-hmm. you know, public sector employee type work. How did you end up doing this type of employment law? It's pretty niche. Well, someone knocked on my door and said, I'm a federal employee. He was, he was gay. And he said, you know, this is sexual orientation discrimination. And I started looking into, okay, like, and, he, and he's the one that actually brought in the tomes, the, the one, the tomes <laughs> that went up to my waist. <laughs> document the ROI Uh, yes the ROI that was huge and I learned from just asking other attorneys that not a lot of attorneys at least in Chicago do this do this type of work and in fact I think really there's a lot in Hawaii I think because there's so many military bases in Hawaii there's a lot in DC obviously because that's the center of federal workers but outside of DC and Hawaii I I don't really think pretty much everywhere else in the country not a lot of employment attorneys do federal sector work so I just kind of thought well yeah, maybe I can, this is something I can, I can, this can become like a focus of my practice. And what's nice too, is it's a little more affordable to, to litigate than, than in your typical private sector case. Are there, are there any other challenges to, rep- I mean, besides the fact that it can take two presidential administrations to get you to a jury, Do, are there other challenges or things about federal sector work that make it harder or easier that you find? I mean, not easy, nothing we, I, I think it's fair to say that nothing any of us does in employment law is easy, but is, is there something that makes one versus the other more challenging to you? Definitely the deadlines, the tight deadlines are more of a challenge just making sure that you, you know, you can, you can meet those. And I would say too, this is anecdotal and also from anecdotal from what I've heard from other federal sector practitioners across the country is that we think, we think that this, you know, that the president Trump administration kind of starved the EEOC and, and other agencies that enforce employee rights, whether the department of labor, uh, NLRB. Department of uh, education. Department of Education, that a lot of uh, agencies that really enhance Americans' lives that are so important to protecting our rights and values and all that, they've been starved. And it seems that cases are moving through the administrative process within the EEOC much slower. So whereas maybe it would take two to three years, 
to get to a hearing before an administrative judge. Now it's taking maybe five to six years. It's, and, you know, the time is kind of doubling. It's not, and I've only been practicing for seven years and six years as a, as a plaintiff side attorney. So my knowledge well is not that deep, but it just, uh, well, for what, other, what, what others are saying and what I'm experiencing too is that it's, it's taking longer. How does summary judgment kind of function in these cases? Are, are summary judgment typically denied because you're just going to end up with a hearing with an administrative law judge or am I wrong? It's pretty much the same practice as a, as a district court, as a federal district court. And it, because it's the administrative judge that is the one deciding summary judgment. And it depends on, it really depends on the judge. Some some AJs are going to grant summary judgment. Some AJs are very open towards the complainant, the plaintiff submitting a motion for summary judgment, especially uh, on like a failure to accommodate claim when it comes to disability. It just depends on the judge. I've, I've heard of, it just runs like a mood. just from what, what other people have said from different districts across the country. And I think we, I think we see some of that on even in the private sector. I think we're seeing some of the the starving of the agencies to go back just a, a moment. I mean, especially during the pandemic when everything was so overburdened. I can't count how many calls I got from people who said I filed an EEOC charge and I got a right to sue letter. Like they just flat out told me, yeah, there might be something here, but we just we just don't have the time. You're going to get a right to sue letter. And you think about the disservice that does them because it gives them this 90 day window where maybe before an agency might have at least done a perfunctory investigation into what had happened, given them a chance to get an attorney or a settlement. But now they've got 90 days to get a lawyer to basically decide, do I want to commit to litigating this case, you know, in theory from start to finish or not? That's not a lot of time. It sounds like a long time, but three months goes quick. And if one of our attorneys is going to do due diligence, it's, it's really not that long. Yeah, exactly. It's I don't know what to say. I, I don't want to besmirch the EEOC or any of these agencies. And I know that there are good people, are good investigators, good people doing the claims intake process who truly believe in upholding employee rights and the civil rights, but they must be overworked. I mean, you know? I think I think that's a big chunk of it. They're just overburdened right now. There's a lot of stuff happening and not enough people to to do all of it. Well, I think especially in the, you know, I think generally too, from maybe from a administrative standpoint, but then when you combine that with a pandemic, when a lot of people are being separated, I'm sure it's, it's a tough time for the agencies. Yeah. I think about the IDHR. I mean, when you, when you deal with them, you know, they haven't at the state level, right? Like I've talked to quite a few investigators during all this and they're just not in person. So it's, there's, which is good. I don't want them in person and like in danger, but it just means it adds another layer of difficulty to like getting paper where it needs to get to, you know, in the time that it needs to get there and making sure that it's file stamped and received in a timely fashion, you know? So Jason, any good war stories or cases that you think merit at least a brief discussion or you think people might find interesting, whether from federal sector, private sector, or any other EEO, EEOC type work you've done? I didn't know, but let me, I guess I'll say to, you know, to go to the, any war stories, I, the only thing I can, you know, there's always interesting things that are happening, but like the things that press in my mind the most that come up to my mind are the, the, the stories of having, well, like, like this one case that went into bankruptcy. Maybe I can talk a little bit about, and this could be like practical advice for other, other Here's, you know what? You know what you could do? That works. Or we could talk a little bit about the overlap of criminal employment. You and I have talked. Remember all those times I called you to talk about the Recording Act, Eavesdropping Act? 
No, I'm good. Well, you, Max, you probably know more about that than I than I do. Come on, uh, man, you were a prosecutor. Well, I mean, all I can say is like, well, it I'm going to give the classic lawyer answer. It depends. It depends on like you know. If so, prosecutor so, wants to prosecute that. Well, so let me ask it this way. What if I just, what if we ask you about what's one area that you've seen or you can talk about where there's an intersection of criminal law and employment law and you can say, well, you know, something that some of us see or something that I get questions on just because of the criminal background is, you know, if somebody secretly records an employer, you know, and violates the eavesdropping act, you, can, you don't have to have an answer to the question. You can just talk about like, it's something that we run into now and again. What I what I tell my clients is okay if we're going to go with the federal route like we go to district court, um, and especially the ones that already have recorded their I like you know recorded their, right. their boss then yeah. then yeah then I say I, you know from my understanding a lot of federal judges don't care about that and if you're in Cook County like the, the state's attorney's office doesn't care so and it and it, maybe it's been more than a year or more than two years I think I think the statute of limitations is two years so it's like number one you know the State's attorney's office doesn't care. The police don't care that you violated this eavesdropping law. And then the judge, also the federal judge, doesn't care. So, yeah, let's. Or if they're still employed, you know, I might say like, well, yeah, you, you've got the app to record. Like, I'm not encouraging you, but we could use it probably in federal court. Like, you know. But if I know it's gonna go, then because I think even if it's not a crime, if it doesn't get charged as a crime, I think state court judges are gonna be persuaded to disregard that evidence, disregard a recording because it violates state law. So Jason, one thing that I think is a little unique about your practice, and I guess in full disclosure, he talked to Amit and I ahead of time. So we, we know this about him. We, we try to circle up with people ahead of time is, you know, it may not sound like it, but we do try to do some research for these episodes. <laughs> <laughs> but Jason, you have a you're somebody who really is excited to get to trial to go in front of a jury. A lot of attorneys like to get their cases settled because there's a certainty to it. Everybody gets paid and, and whether you're happy with it or not, there's a finality to it, but you're, you're gunning for jury trials. You know, why? <laughs> well, again, it's that exercise of trying to prove the truth. I, you know, I feel like there's in our system of justice where you have an accuser and accused, how do you prove that what the accuser is saying is right. I mean, the system that we have is if no one wants to settle, no one wants to plea to a criminal charge, then it goes to the ultimate decider, which which are, depending on your jurisdiction, but here in Illinois, 12 people, 12 jury members. So I, I like that challenge. And an older Mila attorney once told me, and actually he told a lot of people because it was during a speech, that if you, if you actually want to get decent settlements, like real settlements that are not just go away money, you know, not just here's 30,000, here's 50,000. If you want to get the ones that really vindicate your client, you have to press jury trial. You have to press litigation. And I kind of believe that. I think, um, you know, as you guys know, the longer we're in a case, especially, especially on contingency, well, any, let me back up. The, as you guys, as you guys know, the longer we're in a case, the civil rights laws say that the defendant, if we win, if we prevail, pay our attorney's fees. So there's that added pressure of I'm not settling and hey, the damages, the damages could be $10,000. But if all you're offering us is $1,000 or $2,000 
or, you know, if I have a client who's like, I, I don't even care about the 10,000. I just want my day in court. I want, you know, I want a public record that's, that admits, that shows that this defendant did what I claim they did. And if I settle, even for the damage amount, I'm probably gonna have to sign a non-disclosure agreement, an NDA. I, you know, I don't want that. I, I have had clients who, who they want their 15 minutes in court or their day in court. And I respect that. I respect that. So I, I tell the defense, if you really want my client to go away, you're going to have to make it a lot higher or I'll see you in court. And, you know, the damage, she could have been a fast food worker and maybe she was only on, only unemployed. And I say only quote unquote, sarcastically for three months. And then she got another job at another fast food place. So her damages are only 10,000, but you know what we've been litigating now for a couple of years. I've been, I've invested hundreds of hours in this case and if you want to settle it, it's not going to be 10,000. And so we're just going to have to, we're going to have to have a jury decide it. And the jury might say $10,000 in damages to the, the plaintiff or compensatory damages for her back pay. And then, you know, the attorney's fees, the emotional damages, punitive damages, whatever. That's, I feel that that's true justice. But another aspect too of a settlement is every settlement agreement I've ever seen includes language saying that the employer admits they did nothing wrong. And so, if you want, you know, a jury or people to say, hey, this was wrong, the only way to get that really is a jury trial. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and, and, and to the monetary component, again, I feel like you really have to be willing, you have to show, and I think probably earn a reputation that you're willing to go all the way to that jury to get anybody to take seriously those emotional distress or punitive damage threats that your case and your client and you pose to them, right? Because otherwise, it's just you know, you're a nuisance <laughs> and they can make you go away with nuisance money. Well, with that, Jason, anything else you'd like to plug today or, or mention before we, before we sign off? Yes. As you know, I'm a member of the NILA Illinois Judiciary Committee and the chair, Megan O'Malley, is really involved in this, this organization called Courts Matter Illinois. Courts Matter is focused on getting nominations to the federal bench, nominations of plaintiff-friendly, employee-friendly judges. You know, the last four years we've had, we've had so many judges nominated and appointed, confirmed, who are, you know, their backgrounds are representing corporations or they were prosecutors out of the U.S. Attorney's Office. And they don't really understand the struggles of trying to prove civil rights. You know, we need more balance. We need more representation. We, know, we need more diversity in the federal courts. The majority of the last four years, those appointees have been male, they've been white, they've been straight, and that just does not reflect America today. So go to Courts Matter, Courts Matter Illinois. You can Google it. I think they're, the main point of contact is their Facebook page. So if you go on Facebook and you look up Courts Matter Illinois, you'll find a lot of opportunities to get involved, opportunities they'll broadcast about how, you know, who to write, who to contact, to, to get certain federal judicial nominations in. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll just well, go ahead. And, I'm oh, sorry. Megan, Megan's work is incredible. Yeah. One thing she said to me once too, which I still remember obviously is, you know, it's not enough just of diversity amongst categories of people in protected class status type situations, but also diversity amongst practice areas. A lot of times you have, you know, people being nominated for judges that really represent institutions. And so one thing Courts Matter just does a much better job of advocating for is people who also represent individuals. And that's really valuable. 
Well, and I'll, and I'll second that. And all I was going to say was I've been to one of those events before that Courts Matter have put on, and I think they're great. At least the one I went to actually broke people out into groups and gave them hypothetical scenarios that had gone up in front of the Northern District of Illinois or other district courts and other circuit courts that seemed like pretty clear discrimination and basically asked people what where they landed on it, where they think it is, and then shown how judges ruled against it and said, actually, no discrimination here. So it, it, it forces people to kind of get in the shoes of the litigants and understand how high the bar to proving discrimination is and kind of reemphasizing to people in a way that they don't really think about. I mean, people don't always think about the fact that the president gets to set the tone on who's picking judges. And so, you know, any organization that helps make our lives easier in a good way and advances civil rights is a good one. And it's, it's an important organization in educating people and the like. So good, good on you, Jason, for, for mentioning that one. Not a problem. Jason, thanks again for coming on again and talking to us about federal sector work and employment law and, and your unique and, and interesting perspective on it. We really appreciate it. If people want to find you, how can they do that? They can go to my website, Jason Han Law, J-A-S-O-N-H-A-N-L-A-W. So that's my first name, last name, and L-A-W.com, JasonHanLaw.com. Um, you can find my telephone number on there. There's a way to email me through my website, and that would be the best way. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.